Markham, Richmond Hill, Vaughan. From everywhere you are. Aurora, Newmarket, East Willemberry. This is The Feed. Georgina, King, Whitchurch, Stovall. The Feed is York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to the people that live and work here. I'm Ann Romer. Welcome to The Feed. Next Friday, September 30th, will mark the second National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. Orange Shirt Day is also on the 30th. It is a time to honor and remember the Indigenous children who survived the horrors of residential schools and those who did not. Every child matters. Our first story on The Feed endeavors to shine a light on those who are inspired to change the world. History in the making. Last month, Dr. Alika Lafontaine became the Canadian Medical Association's first Indigenous president and also the youngest person ever to take the helm. Forty years old, the anesthesiologist at Alberta's Grand Prairie Regional Hospital has been witnessing firsthand the many challenges facing our healthcare system, one that up until recently was the envy of many around the world. His job will be to speak for the CMA and speak up for Canadian healthcare professionals from coast to coast to coast. Dr. Alika Lafontaine joins us now on the feed. Welcome and congratulations. Thanks so much. Great to be here. How is it that a little boy whose school system said to him, you're probably not going to graduate from high school, ends up being such a a well-known doctor, successful doctor, and now the head of the CMA. How does that happen? You know, in in the middle of experiencing those types of, you know, formative experiences, I, I think you sometimes believe that you're all by yourself. It's been very interesting since getting into the position of being president of the CMA and having my story more broadly known, there are a lot of people who have experienced the same sort of struggle in their childhood or parents of children who experienced the same sort of, of uh, struggles. And it's, it's been really inspiring for me to hear those stories and to realize that you know, the things that I went through, I, I wasn't really going through it alone. It was something that was shared by a lot of people. And your family believed in you, and they also believed in creating a space for you. What does that mean? My, my parents are obviously pretty amazing people. And when I was labeled as learning disabled, the school system took the position that I, I wouldn't be able to do more than what they thought, which, which was very, very little. And my parents had to sit back and reflect, you know, what, what do we actually want for our child? And what do we want to prioritize? Who do we want to listen to? I think when you're talking about creating space for people, you're letting you're letting there be, you know, a space for them to fill. You know, my, my parents didn't project onto me a lot of things beyond kind of their hopes and dreams for me. And they let me grow into the person that they hoped I'd become. But they, they always gave, like, that room to let me become whatever I was going to become. You know, they, they loved me for who I was. Mm. And it shows. And they must be very proud. And I have to ask you, you know, when we're little, when we're all young, we, we have dreams, we have hopes. Was that yours as a youngster to become a doctor? Ever since I was young, my parents would sit down with me and my, my siblings. I, I have three brothers and I had a sister, and she'd always remind us, you know, education is the path to, you know, the, the next step, you know, a, a better life, hopefully. And she, she always encouraged us to go into areas where we could be resources for the family. You know, health is obviously one of those areas where, once you go into the system, if you don't have a close friend or a close family member that you feel that you can share your struggles with, um, you, you have a very difficult time sometimes navigating it. And I, I'm hoping that that's getting better, but especially when we were young, I know my mom struggled with it, my dad struggled with it. You know, we had family members who, who had gotten sick and, you know, really, really struggled with their own past through, through the healthcare system. And I, I think early on, my, my mom had planted in each of our minds that, you know, one of us should probably go into a medical field. You know, there they were no doctors on either side of the family. There was really no health professionals on either side of the family. So uh, ever since I was young, that, that idea had been planted. But I, I will say it wasn't until I had become a teenager and, you know, kind of young adult that I, I thought it might actually be possible. You know, at age 16, if I'm not mistaken, you became one of the youngest recipients of a prestigious undergraduate grant through the University of Regina. It's one of those, like, so there. <laughs> you, you know, I, I ended up having really amazing mentors throughout my, my high school and, and university years. You know, Dr. Nikki's Neraldine was, um, you know, a, a mentor who I, I met early on. I still remember being in his class 
on the very first day and him pulling me from the back and actually sitting me in the front and saying, you know, it's, is this, is this really what you want from this class? You know, just to, you know, be on autopilot and, and kind of run through. And, and he had been that way with, with lots of kids, especially indigenous kids who had come through his class. And it, it's really those folks who saw me as more than what I saw myself as that made the biggest difference in me getting into medicine and then, you know, all of these other incredible things that I've had the, the blessing to be a part of. You are the first person of uh, Indigenous background and South Pacific Islander heritage to assume this position. You're also the youngest. I mean, these are pretty incredible milestones for you. When you found out that this was going to be a fait accompli, what, what went through your mind? Yeah, I, I remember when when I, I got the call that uh, Alberta physicians had chosen me to be, you know, the, the president of the, the CMA for uh, this year. And you know, there, there were a lot of things that ran through our mind. The, the first thing was why I actually ran to be president in, in the first place. You know, there, there's a lot of pain and suffering in the healthcare system right now. You know, the, the last few years have been not only rough on people, but, but to, to a great degree, um, very heartbreaking. You know, there, there's been a lot of lives that have been turned upside down by everything that's been going on. And I, I look to my physician colleagues and, and see their, their pain and suffering. You know, a lot of people questioning is what I thought I'd get out of medicine, you know, that, that amazing relationship that you get with with patients in those moments that, you know, as a physician, you're one of the few people that people share that part of their life with. You know, um, seeing that people weren't getting that, um, it, it's been front of mind ever since I found out that, that I, I'd be coming into this role. And then also thinking about how, how can I deliver on what leaders are supposed to do? How can I make sure people feel hope when they think about the future? And how can I talk with, with people about the problems that are out there in, in a real and authentic way that doesn't minimize the actual struggles that we're all going through? And do you think that your voice will now be amplified now that you are the president of the Canadian Medical Association? I, I think my voice has definitely been amplified. And, and one of the great opportunities I have is to make sure other voices get amplified as well. You know, I, it's, it's, a, it's a common leadership saying that the greatest leaders are the ones who create a long path of leaders who follow them. And I, I think it's a it's a wonderful moment for the healthcare system that someone like myself is able to fill a position like this. But I, I definitely don't want to be the last person who comes from my background and lived experience to fill this role. And I think it's a real gift to, you know, leadership in, in medicine elsewhere when we create those spaces for people who usually don't fill those roles to have the opportunity. So you're kind of paying it forward that the space was created for you as you were a young person growing up and dealing with all kinds of things that were kind of holding you back, but you pressed on, and you are now in a position to create spaces for others. Absolutely, and I I think back once again to all those mentors that have really touched my life. You know, several of them have have passed on now, but I, I, I truly have experienced standing on the shoulders of giants as I've moved to where I am now. And for anyone who's gone into a leadership position, whether they realize it or not, you stood on someone's shoulders to get to where you are. Absolutely. You know, many are observing that there are systemic racism issues in the healthcare system. The healthcare system is, is you know, there's a lot of bloodletting going on right now in Canada, in particular here in Ontario. What what will your voice do? What can you do to enact a change, to shore things up, to stop the bleeding? You know, the, the number one thing that I think we need in the healthcare system is to have an honest conversation about what's actually happening. And it's a scary thing to come forward with experiences when you're racialized, you know, and, and feel like people will actually honor your stories, that you won't be interrogated in the course of, of sharing your experience, and that you'll have a, a, a supportive experience as you kind of go through what happens after you share your story. I think the same sort of thing exists for frontline providers who are trying to share what they see happening in the system. You know, and, and I think we need to make a shift in the way that we respond to you know, ER closures and, you know, reports that uh, we're, we're running short of nurses or, or doctors in certain areas um, and all the other crises that, that are seem to all be converging at the same time and start to acknowledge, you know, that the system has been pushed to the point where in some places it's actually breaking. We should be proud of the fact that it's been so resilient up until now. I mean, we had serial waves of this pandemic. We're, we're probably moving into other waves in, you know, the coming years. So, we should be proud of the system that we have, but we should also be honest about where it's at. And there's a lot that we need to do to stabilize and then rebuild what we have. And do you have the courage to speak the truth on behalf of the Canadian Medical Association and the Canadian medical professionals who line up behind you? You know, I, 
I have courage because of the people who sent me to this position, you know, Alberta physicians. And I also have courage because I, I know what people are doing on the front line. You know, every time that I hear a story from someone about the sacrifices that they're going through in order to provide good care, every time that I hear from a patient about their own frustrations, but then also the good experiences that they've had with persons within the healthcare system, you know, it gives me faith and it gives me courage. And, you know, there, there are times when leaders have to choose to be courageous and there's other times where leaders have to be courageous or else they can't fix the problems that are out there. And I, I think we're in the latter position right now. So I, I'm no different than other leaders out there. We, we need to move beyond ourselves so we can actually get to work fixing the problem that we have. And you're just a kid. You're only 40 years old. And that's I'm, you're, I'm speaking from a little bit older perspective. One last question, and this is t- strictly a medical question. Why anesthesiology? Why did you choose that particular branch of the medical profession? I, I actually wanted to be a surgeon when I first got into medical school. And I ended up meeting my now wife. And we reevaluated some of the life decisions that I'd be making later on. So I, I actually didn't know what I wanted to do kind of mid-med school because I, I, I switched my thoughts of how I wanted my, my life to turn out. And I had a good friend who uh, took me on uh, a night of call and uh, he was an anesthesiologist. And as I followed around him during the night, I mean, it, it wasn't the most exciting, but in the middle of the night, we ended up having a code that was called. And I, I saw him walk into a room that was filled with a whole lot of chaos. And within minutes of him walking in and starting to support people in that room, it went from this chaotic situation to feeling very calm and structured. And I, I looked at him and I, I looked at the situation and I said, you know, this is what I would love to do as a physician. I would love to come into situations where people feel like things are spiraling out of control. And because of my training and my skills, I can support people to figure stuff out. And, and it's really given me a, a wonderful career. Hmm. This is just the next step in a life full of many steps, and we'll be watching. Thank you, Dr. Alika Lafontaine, the Canadian Medical Association's first Indigenous president, and also, as I've mentioned several times, just a kid, just 40 years old. The world is your oyster, and thank you so much for spending time with us on the feed. Much appreciated. Jim Lang is next with the importance of marking National Truth and Reconciliation Day. Friday, September 30th is not just any day, thanks to some great initiatives put forth by this country. It's the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, an important day for this nation going forward. To talk more about it, thrilled to be speaking to someone who has her finger in the pulse of Indigenous communities in Canada, Wanda Brasco. Wanda, how are you? I'm well, thank you. How are you? Excellent, thank you. Uh, Bear Clan Anisha, I'm going to say this right, Anishinaabe, you know, Wanda, um, I, I think about how this nation's evolving and going forward and progressing through the years. I know I'm trying to, as a, just a regular Canadian, educate myself more, uh, be more aware of Indigenous communities, Indigenous names, Indigenous nations. Are we, are we improving? Are we getting there? You know, we we spoke last year. I met you for the first time, had a great conversation. And from last year to this year, uh, I would say yes. And collectively, you know, as, as a country, you're made up of, of individuals. And from an individual standpoint, just your growth, uh, your ability to say Anishinaabe, to to recognize that um, that is who I am, I would say yes. I'm hopeful. That's good. I, I, I'm blessed. My wife and I, we have two kids in university and without prompting from us, it's just something that the girls do and the boys and girls in campus do that they wear orange shirts. They recognize the importance of indigenous communities and in making sure indigenous students are taken care of, which didn't exist when I was in school in the 80s. And it's it's wonderful to see. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, that's a great um, example. I have three daughters, um, two have graduated, one is, a, is in her third year, and their experience versus my experience uh, is a thousand, a thousand degrees different. The, you know, Justice Murray Sinclair had said at the time he was justice and then became Senator Murray Sinclair. He had said at the end of the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission uh, in June of 2015 that education got us here, education will get us out. And just by your example of your daughters, 
uh, wearing orange shirts, having that conversation. It's, I said hopeful in the very beginning. I, I am hopeful simply because the next generation, which we all hope, you know, we carry what we carry and we hope the next generation carries it further than we ever did. You know, we have a, uh, an indigenous governor general now and to Canadians like, okay, yeah, you look at her resume, she should be our governor general. She's deserved it and earned it a thousand times over. And we saw Governor General Simon and these indigenous leaders and elders in London for the Queen's funeral. You know, Wanda, I don't want to overstate it, but it made me very proud to be Canadian to see that, see that step. You know, this this might be another education moment. So for not all indigenous nations in Canada, but many, in particular my background with the Haudenosaunee people, our our relationship is with the crown. Canada came after. If you sign a treaty, there are many treaties that are, the relationship is with the crown and not with the government of Canada because we, you know, that relationship was formed before Canada was a country. So again, not all in, not all nations are like this, but many are. So to have, uh, uh, to have uh, Mary Simon as the governor general, uh, and I'm very grateful that I, over COVID, I got, began to work with her, and um, she be, then became the governor general. Uh, you know, she had to take another job. Um, I'm so I am also very proud, and the relationship that the Inuit have with the crown is far different than potentially the Métis or the Dene. Like it's we're that's the it isn't all. In, we utilize the word indigenous. Uh, as a as a way to speak of uh, multi nations, and we're not all the same. We're not from the same geographic landscape. We don't have the same uh, many of the same um, stories. But we the common thread between Indigenous peoples is what binds us together, and what I believe uh, can can make Canada even a better place to live. As I understand it, Wanda, Ani in most Indigenous languages is welcome. Am I correct? That's not all Indigenous languages. That's your, in, in, in your neck of the woods, yes. Ah, but okay. definitely, right, in your neck of the woods, yes. So your, and that's a place for many people to learn. So whether you have listeners that are in Ontario or you have listeners maybe uh, that are living in New Zealand, mm. wherever your listeners are from, you can look. There's a really great app. I believe it's called native.land.net, but it's called Native Land. And you can globally look oh. up what traditional, yeah, it's a really cool app, what traditional lands of the people that were there uh, and are and still are there. Sometimes not, but many, yes, sometimes there. Well, now we, well, I, I, I just, it's part of everyday life. There's an acknowledgement of indigenous lands before a government speaking, before a cultural sporting event. And at first, like, oh, but now it's like, okay, I expect it. Like I would expect the anthem or expect an introduction to, uh, to a, our artists or a sports team. That should be part of our, of those kind of introductions. It should be there. I appreciate that. And there's, there's that education component, right? So there's land acknowledgments, and there's sometimes pushback on, on it's just a land acknowledgement. There's no other. There's no other depth to it. So it's like a veneer. However, hmm. I believe that it is when it becomes a natural state, right? So okay, it becomes a natural state, or, or as you indicated, you're you know you're looking forward to it, or you know you expect it. Therein lies the individual. Um, the individuals responsibility and opportunity to learn more in their own in their own neck of the woods and then collectively as each individual takes on to whatever whatever length and strength on they add people on twitter or they follow indigenous people on instagram or they read the global mail and they you know make it a point to read um um you know titles or or um or authors there are opportunities to to engage uh, daily in your in in areas that you're interested in, which is actually we talked about last year. Mm-hmm. Speaking of Wanda Braskoop, on uh, we're talking about Truth and Reconciliation Day on Friday, September 30th, such an important day in Canada. 
You had mentioned social media, and I find I've been really educated through different Indigenous people in social media, whether they're um, Indigenous reporters, Indigenous athletes, Indigenous artists, and telling their truth. And like, oh, oh, I never knew that. And like, I find it very eye-opening. It's so true. I mean, that's how many people learn these days. And in this in even though it is like you and your computer, you can make your world larger by not just looking at what is comfortable for you, including myself. I'm interested, or um, uh, I'm interested in learning more about the LGBT2 community. So I added into my regular feed, and I follow people, uh, even things that I fully believe in. I don't always necessarily. Uh, agree with uh, a, a particular writer or a particular stance, but unless I'm willing to be uncomfortable, I won't be learning. There's a there's a quote that we always said with with our daughters: "Learning happens at the edge of understanding." And I'm afraid of heights, so going to the edge is not always the most comfortable place for me. But it is where learning can can uh, broaden uh, your broaden your perspective again it there doesn't have to be 100 agreements but it broadens your perspective of what exists out there wanda i i can't thank you enough for how you have educated me and our listeners and and helping us speak the truth and as a nation getting better i mean we have we're not there yet but by goodness if we keep doing a little bit every year we could get there i agree i completely agree again we started with uh the question of where do you think we're at and i said we're we're slowly getting there, and I'm hopeful. And I'm glad you're hopeful with me. Wanda, thank you so much for doing this. It's greatly appreciated. A National Indian Residential School crisis line has been set up to provide support for former students and those affected. People can access emotional and crisis referral services by calling the 24-hour National Crisis Line, one 866 925 We'll be right back. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. Our next couple of stories focus on the battle against breast cancer. Tina Cortez now with How You Can Help. Julia Supa is back with us on The Feed. She is the co-run director for the Canadian Cancer Society, CIBC Run for the Cure. Nice to speak with you again, Julia. Thanks so much for having me, Tina. Tell us about this year's run experience. I hear we're back in person. We're back in person and we are so, so excited the Canadian Cancer Society CIBC Run for the Cure is a 5K or 1K walk or run that raises funds for the Canadian Cancer Society. It is the largest single-day volunteer-led event in Canada in support of the breast cancer cause. We are representing Woodbridge Vaughan, and like you said, we're back in person on October 2nd at the North Maple Regional Park. So let's talk specifically about the event here in Woodbridge Vaughan. How much has it raised over the years? This year, we are celebrating our 10th anniversary in Woodbridge Vaughan. We are so excited, and we have raised more than $1.7 million for the cause at our run site alone. And how does the fundraiser help those impacted by breast cancer? So, Tina, what I can tell you is one in eight women are being diagnosed with breast cancer in her lifetime, and we all have a reason to run, and it's the most commonly diagnosed cancer among Canadian women. The funds raised through this run can help enable the next big discovery or ensure that someone who's facing a breast cancer diagnosis has all the information and support they need to manage life with breast cancer more easily. Everything from transportation, uh, assistance with lodging and accommodation, there's a national free wig program, and a toll-free helpline that can help those who have or are going through breast cancer. And you've been participating in this event for many years, right? I have. I'm proud to be one of the co-founders of the Woodbridge Vaughn Run site. We brought it to Vaughn, like I said, 10 years ago. 
And why does it mean so much to you? Why do you participate? Why do you want to be involved in organizing such a special and significant event? Unfortunately, we will all know someone in our lifetime with cancer or with breast cancer. Personally, my mother-in-law had breast cancer the year that we got married. Uh, I am a woman and I am a mom to two young daughters. And not only is it important to get involved in community events, but events that touch you personally, um, something that we can give back and hopefully change the future. We can be part of history together and we can create a future without breast cancer. And what do you hear from participants or maybe other volunteers? Who are they and why do they do it? We have volunteers from high school students to families, grandmothers. We are really a family-friendly event. So whether you are participating or volunteering, you know, there, there really is a sense of pride and emotion that is evident on run day. And you, you just leave feeling so proud of everything we've accomplished and that we are really doing something good collectively. The event is next Sunday. What's planned for that day? So that day on Sunday, October 2nd at North Maple Regional Park in Vaughan, everyone is welcome to register. You can register online in advance or you can register in person. We are offering a cashless registration this, this year. Our opening ceremonies and awards begin at 9.30 in the morning, followed by the walk run that begins shortly after 10. And when you're done your walk run, participants are welcome back to the site to enjoy some treats and refreshments donated by our generous sponsors. And can you share some of the details of the opening ceremonies? Absolutely. So one of the, I'll say, most special parts of the ceremony um, is a chance to hear from someone who has had or is currently going through cancer treatment. And we have a lady named Gloria Forte who will be sharing her story or part of her story. Um, And when you're up on stage, you look out onto that sea of hundreds of people and you can pick out some people in pink shirts. And those people in pink shirts, um, they're our hope participants. And these are the men and women who have gone through a cancer diagnosis, either past or present. So it really is a special moment. Um, People will have some treats, the opportunity to visit our sponsors, and really just, you know, take in the joy of the day. I've often heard that the goal of this event is to help change the future of breast cancer. What does that mean? Yes. We are providing vitally important support programs. At least we're assisting in doing that. And the impact of the Canadian Cancer Society, CIBC Run for the Cure, is undeniable. Together with all of our supporters, we've shaped the breast cancer landscape in Canada And we've contributed to significant improvements in the way breast cancer is being prevented, detected, diagnosed, and treated. Of course, there's always more room and more work to be done, and that's where the research comes in, the collective focus and investment in breast cancer research. The five-year survival for breast cancer has improved. And today, 89% of women and 80% of men with breast cancer survive at least five years past their diagnosis. And that is huge. Absolutely. If our listeners want to donate, participate, volunteer, where should they go? We welcome all participants, all donations, and of course, volunteers, CIBCRunForTheCure.com. You and your group have always organized such an amazing event. I wish you tremendous good luck and good weather on October 2nd. Thank you so much, Tina. And thank you to everyone from the region for your annual support. We really couldn't do it without you. Shaliza Backus with one woman's story of triumph and tattoos. You know her and you love her and she's probably the person you turn to when you need to know what's going on with Mother Nature. Longtime host on the Weather Network, Kim McDonald is not only an accomplished broadcaster, but an ambassador for the Breast Cancer Society of Canada. Now, ahead of Breast Cancer Awareness Month in October, Kim joins me to share her remarkable journey and battle. How are you, Kim? I'm fine. Thanks so much for having me. 
Thank you so much for joining me. Now, before we get into your latest news, because it's it's pretty spectacular, can you first take us back to 2016 and just share your journey and all the hurdles you've overcome since then? Wow. Yes. And the funny thing is, even though it is uh, five years ago, it is all still very clear in my mind. So I was diagnosed with breast cancer on December the 1st, 2016. And for most of 2017, I was dealing with all that goes with breast cancer. So I had eight rounds of chemotherapy. I had a bilateral mastectomy and I had 25 rounds of radiation. So that was five days a week for five weeks through the summer. And then I had a really spectacular drug. I like all the drugs are good, but this one is really good. It's called Herceptin. And I had 18 fusions of Herceptin. And basically that is a drug that wasn't around more than about 20 years ago. And because it was discovered for people with my specific diagnosis, I am alive and well five years later. But if I had been diagnosed before the year 2000, that would likely not be the case. I had a very aggressive breast cancer and, uh, and everything worked very well for me. So I had a complete response to chemotherapy. The Herceptin worked well. And uh, thankfully, I had a great team. Yeah. And there's so much, so much that goes into cancer treatment and it's, it's a lot. And when looking back on it, I'm sure it's just been such a journey. I feel like it must feel like a dream to you now. You know, I would say it's a nightmare, but if that's not a hundred percent true, because as difficult as it is to go through breast cancer treatment, um, a lot of really powerful, positive things happened to me along the way. And those are the things that I was not expecting. So because I went public with my diagnosis and told people my story, I wrote a blog, I was on a radio show, I shaved my head live on Facebook. I did all of these things in a way to educate people because I was just learning myself. I didn't really know what I was doing. And so this is my, my small way of having any kind of control over the situation. And I had so much support because of it, but that really wasn't the thing. It wasn't the people who were propping me up, which really basically held me through the entire thing. And I am forever in debt to the people who did that for me. But it's the people that reached out and said that I was helping them because they were going through the same thing and they couldn't talk about it or they didn't know how to explain it to their children or their spouses. And uh, there I was just talking about it freely so they could use my voice to kind of uh, explain what they were going through. So there was this connection with people that I had not anticipated. And I think I gave a lot of people a lot of hope because of how things were going for me. Yes, you definitely did. And that is definitely what people need when they're going through that. And and going off of that, you know, I'm sure as much as you want to stay positive, it's it's so much easier said than done. So what are some of the other major things that got you through this time? Yeah, it is hard to stay positive. That was, I tried to have control over my attitude because that's basically all you've got. You know, everything happens to people, good and bad, as we know. It doesn't have to be a cancer diagnosis. It can be something else. And you may not have control over that, but how you face it, how you look at it, how you can turn things around if you can, that's how you get through it. And I'm telling you, I could not do it alone. I had friends and family and strangers um, send me cards every, you know, every week. I'd have a bouquet of flowers and right when it was about to die, another bouquet of flowers would show up from somebody completely different. And sometimes it would happen on a day that I was really down and something would happen. Someone would send me a message or somebody would send me something and tell me that, you know, they loved me or they were thinking about me and my day would turn around. So honestly, it was, I relied so heavily on my community and they really lifted me up. This is what I want to tell people is that if you have breast cancer, please don't keep it to yourself. And please don't just tell one person. I know people are very private, but if you only rely on one friend or one spouse or your mother, that person is carrying so much burden. But if you open it up and let each person carry a little bit for you, then it's not too much for one person. I feel like you just you just answered my next question because I was going to ask you if you had any advice, any advice to offer to someone battling a diagnosis, be it the patient themselves or a loved one, what else would you say? Yeah, I have a lot. I have a lot of advice. 
Uh, actually, read my blog. I, that would be one, kmacblog.ca or .com. I have a whole blog on your friend has been diagnosed with cancer. Now what? Like, how can, what can you do to help them? And there's all these little, little tips, little things that you can do to help someone who's going through cancer because we don't know what to do. We don't know what to say. But I think the best thing is not to not say anything. You know, some people really do want to talk about what they're going through. And that's as simple as it can get. Uh, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of people with cancer because just think of it as if it was you, what would you want? Right? What would you want? You don't want your friends to scatter. You want them to come closer. You know, take care of yourself. Be healthy. There's a huge link between alcohol and breast cancer. I don't know if a lot of people know that, but it's a very, very strong link. So uh, just something to think about, you know, <laughs> I could tell you so much more, but we don't have that much time. But anyway, <laughs> these are just little things. Uh, but yes, yeah, stay positive for one and, and um, tell your friends. People, yeah. will help, people will help you. Yeah. And I, I do, I have a little bit of a personal question because I do have yeah. like a personal connection. My mom was diagnosed when I was a teenager and I was in high school and in, in grade 12 and just, you know, I didn't really know how to process it. And it, and it's a lot on a teenager, you know, when you just want to, you want to be young, you want to hang out with your friends and it's a lot to, to try and deal with that too. So do you have any advice for any kids who are dealing with maybe a parent or a loved one? Mm. That's a good question. I, my daughters were 20 and 13 when I was diagnosed. So I had an older one who was away at college and she had a far more difficult time because she wasn't with me. And so when I, t I had to tell her on the phone, which is terrible too, and she cried, the youngest was looking right at me, did not see anything wrong with me because I hadn't started treatment. I look just the same as all. And she was okay. Cause I was like, it's going to be fine. She's looking, you know, in my face. I was very honest with my kids you know, I, um, I didn't try to be fearful, but I didn't try to hide it because I think when kids don't know what's going on, it's worse. It scares them more. Right. And I think to be honest with them, but not doom and gloom, that's important. And as a kid, talk to your mom, you know, if you're a teenager, talk to the person who has the cancer, talk to your friends about it. Don't keep it inside. That's a big thing. You'd be surprised at how good people are and how willing they are to help. Great words of advice. Now, now coming back to you, you mentioned off the top that you had a double mastectomy, but you also opted not to have any implants put in. And why was that? Well, I had intended to do that right out of the gate. That was a thing that I just thought everybody did which it is the majority of women do do that. But my oncologist said, can you wait for three years? And I said, oh, <laughs> why do you want me to wait for three years? He said, well, just in case your cancer returns, it's harder to detect it if you have reconstructive surgery. And in that moment, I said, well, I'm never going to do that. I am not going to take the chance of recurrence or not being able to spot it in time for the sake of my looks, for the sake of having implants. It's not worth it to me. And so, and, and it was that moment that I started to seek out other women like me. Do other women not do this? <laughs> you know? So I found all these Facebook pages about women who have decided to stay flat and not have reconstructive surgery. And there's this huge community and they're all there for each other. So that's, that's the route I took. And that's beautiful. It's a beautiful reasoning behind it. You know, society makes us feel like we have to look a certain way and that's not the case. Like putting your health first is, is what's most important. That's right. There's a, a lot more to beauty than breasts. Exactly. And you have, you've turned your trust into something absolutely beautiful that you just shared recently. Why don't you tell us about that? Yes, it was perfect timing too. So for five years now, I've talked about, thought about getting a tattoo, a mastectomy tattoo. A friend had suggested it to me right out of the gate it's as an alternative to reconstruction. She said, you know, there are women who do this. I had never seen it, never heard of it, started to Google it and went, oh my gosh, this is, this is it. This is for me. But I waited because I had scars. I had radiation. I was, you know, I thought, I don't know if I should be tattooing this area that has undergone so much, so much trauma and stress. But after five years, I was ready, ready to go for it. And the Breast Cancer Society of Canada just rebranded this week to call themselves Breast Cancer Canada and have launched a whole new campaign uh, to reflect their new name. And they have used me, my image, and my now new tattoo as part of their ad campaign to show women that 
are thriving post breast cancer as a result of research. So that it, it all kind of came together. I wanted women to see this. I wanted them to know that this was an alternative and that they would feel good and beautiful if they got it. And uh, what a way to show it through uh, a huge Breast Cancer Canada campaign. Yes, that's absolutely amazing. And is there any in specific inspiration behind the flowers that you decided to put on your chest? Yes, for sure. I love sunflowers. I always have. And early on when I was trying to pick a tattoo, and I know this because I have screenshots of sunflower tattoos and mastectomy tattoos in my phone from 2017. Um, there's a saying that says, be the sunflower, stand strong and follow the sun. And that's what I wanted to do all through my treatment. I said, gosh, there's a storm at my back. I need to be strong. I need to look forward to something positive, which is the sun, the end of my treatment, health in the future, and forget this storm behind me. And so that's how I think of a sunflower. They're beautiful. They're bright. And they're just the positive energy that I want to portray. And you are a beacon of positive energy. You really, you really and truly are. Kim, if our listeners want some more information to read your stories and to follow your journey, where can we find you? Yeah, I'm everywhere. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, um, Kim McDonald, The Weather Network on Facebook. I have a blog that outlines my whole journey going, and it's very honest, going through breast cancer, kmacblog.com. And always check out to Breast Cancer Canada's website, which is breastcancerprogress.ca. Amazing. Kim McDonald from The Weather Network, thank you so much for sharing your story. And trust me, you're going to want to check out her blog if you want to read more about breast cancer and just the story of a survivor. And you can see the tattoo as well. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much for joining me, Kim. Thanks for having me. After the break, game on to conquer cancer. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. Road Hockey to Conquer Cancer is taking center ice in Vaughn next week. Jim Lang with the pregame. It's back. One of the most popular events of the calendar year, the Road Hockey to Conquer Cancer in support of Princess Margaret. Once again, back in Vaughn for Saturday, October the 1st. To talk more about it, thrilled to be joined by Brendan Ennis, a Director of Corporate and Community Partnerships for the great folks of the Princess Margaret Cancer Foundation. Brendan, how are you? I'm doing good, Jim. Doing good. Thanks for having me back. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure. Last year, I know even though it was a little rainy and damp and cool, the mood of the people that we we're finally back playing road hockey to raise money for Princess Margaret, back in a great location at the Vaughn Metropolitan Center. I mean, even with the, the wet weather and the dampness, everyone was in a great mood. You know what? Last year, yeah, it was cold, it was wet, and, um, you know, we get into that opening ceremony, so there was a you know, a thousand plus people under the big 10 and one of our uh, doctors getting up on stage, just reminding everybody, you know, that, that, that felt like suffering. Like it probably felt like suffering how cold it was, but it's nothing compared to what people are going through when they're walking through the doors of Princess Margaret for treatment or waiting for the phone call for tests and, uh, and hearing their results. And, and it just really reminded everybody why we were there and, it was cold and wet, but everybody had a great day, and uh, we raised a lot of money for cancer research at Princess Margaret. And we're going to do it again this year, Saturday, October the 1st, back at the Vaughn Metropolitan Center. You can play, you can watch some hockey, you can register your own team, sponsor someone else, just show up. It's all about go all in for your loved ones. You can go to roadhockeytoconquercancer.ca. Uh, I thought the Vaughn location was great last year, and to me it looks like it's going to be even better this year, Brendan. Oh, well, last year, you know, we were working really hard to, we were one of Canada's first large scale events to come back to in person. So there was a lot of effort just to make sure we were doing so safely. This year, of course, safety's at the forefront of our planning, but now we can allow more people to come. We're, we're encouraging our players, bring your friends, bring your family, bring your, your, your donors and supporters. Um, you know, back again, we have 25 different celebrities that our teams will be drafting. We have activities like hardest shot and accuracy shooting and sledge hockey so that people on site can, can enjoy the festivities in a, in a bigger way. Really, really kind of getting it back to the festival type atmosphere that 
that we had uh, in 2019. Well, Brendan, what, what amazes me every year is the the loyalty and the dedication for a lot of the celebs, Shane Corson, Wendell Clark. They're back every year. New ones like Sarah Nurse. And it really keeps it almost like a community. For a lot of these teams, they try to raise money so they can draft the same celebrities every year, and they almost have a little relationship going. That's exactly right. Yeah, it's amazing the bonds that get formed over, you know, the decade plus that we've been doing this event. You know, teams uh, that look for those those players and really those players that look for those teams to draft them again. And, uh, and, and, and yeah, infusing it with new personalities like Sarah Nurse, who, uh, you know, she's been very open with her family story and her journey. And, you know, to be honest, Jim, even for myself in this event, you know, we often look at some of them like, like Wendell or you mentioned Shane Corson or Jeremy Roenick who, you know, grow up watching them play, but, you know, cancer affects everybody and, 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 you know, they, they share their stories and, and for them it's important to be there as well. Speaking with Brendan Ennis, the Director of Corporate and Community Partnerships at the Princess Margaret Cancer Foundation, very excited about another edition of the Princess Margaret Road Hockey to Conquer Cancer coming up Saturday, October the 1st at the Vaughn Metropolitan Center. And once again, Brendan, the Ovarian Blitzers are right now the leading fundraisers, well over $75,000 and counting. It's an incredible effort they put together every year. You know, we're always so excited that the, the friendly competition that that these teams have year over year to to be that top fundraising team and 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 just to highlight again, the ovarian blitzes is led by one of our surgical uh, oncology doctors, Dr. Uh, Marcus Bernardini. So you know, the fact that our our doctors and researchers, obviously, this is this is helping fund research at Princess Margaret, funding their work, and so to see them. Uh, out there fundraising it, it themselves because they're doing it for their their patients and as well as their loved ones. It, it, it's exciting that 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 competition and it'll go right up till uh, we cut off the fundraising for draft night Wednesday at midnight. So you know anybody listening who who can help support if you know somebody on a team, you know help them move up the ranks in that draft night. It really makes a difference and it's teams like that that have helped drive us. You know in ten years of doing this event, we've raised. Over $25 million for research, treatment, and education and care at Princess Margaret. And get all the details and please donate to help your friends of those teams get over the top. RoadHockeyToConquerCancer.ca. In the opening ceremony for people who never experienced it, mm-hmm. I highly recommend you do it. There usually is a little story about why we're there. And we've heard from some amazing men and women and different people, uh, people you may know, people you may not have heard of. But it, I mean, usually a lot of people played a little bit, they've had a little breakfast, and they're they're joshing and joking, Brendan, and then someone speaks about why we're here and why we're doing this and why Princess Margaret is making a difference, and you can hear a pin drop. It's incredible. Yeah, this is a fun event for sure. And But that opening ceremony, you know, it really is that reminder of why we're all doing this. You know, the, the fun and the festivities throughout the day, that's from all the hard work of recruiting a team and fundraising throughout the year. But we we need that reminder of why we went through all that, why we ask our teams to to, to push and fundraise like that. Um, that reminder, and, and it's true. We've had different men, women, families get up on that stage and share their journey. And uh, the fact that everybody crams in under that tent to, to hear that and, and respect those stories and, Often, many people in that crowd have, have lived something very similar. Uh, it, it, it's a powerful moment, and um, and uh, it's actually a moment that everybody in this event, we, we look forward to um, experiencing that kind of uh, emotion and connectivity every year. And, and Brendan, I, there's also a nice side to it as well. Be- because of the, the vast amount of money raised over the years in the event, a lot of the people involved with the Princess Margaret will talk about the success stories and the differences and the advancements. And you're sitting there and going, wow, mm-hmm. this this is really changing people's lives. You know, uh, on, a, on, a, on a personal note, you know, I my, my father, one of the reasons I even work at Princess Margaret through, you know, my father was a patient here. He was a multiple myeloma patient. And, and really, you know, 10 plus years ago, there's only two treatment options available to him. And now patients with that same diagnosis, there's, there's, a, there's a whole menu of options so that the, the quality of life and survival rates continue to go 
up uh, and the options available for the individual, not just the type of cancer, but the individuals going through that journey. And, you know, even even recently, you know, uh, researchers at Princess Margaret developing a type of blood test. So for early detection of cancers, to, to be able to identify cancer in the body just by doing a routine blood test, catching something before well before uh, it becomes something that would maybe need uh, serious treatment. Um, These are things that are not just affecting and and helping patients that visit Princess Margaret, but this is really on a Canada-wide and a global scale changing um, the the face and changing um, the game, really, against uh, battling cancer. If you want to make a difference, even if you don't want to play, you can go to roadhockeytoconquercancer.ca and donate and make a difference. And there was a sweet moment last year where you invited me to play one of your last games and there was a member of your team who really didn't know much about hockey and we we're like, shoot, shoot, and she scored her first goal ever. Well, you thought she won. Brendan, you thought she won the cup. It was fantastic. Yeah, it was, uh, We, you know, here at the foundation, we put a team together ourselves and it was our... Uh, one of our players, it was her first time ever playing hockey and she even held the stick the wrong way. And, <laughs> yeah. You know, we all cheered for it. She scored. Yeah. It was such a moment. And, and, you know, it doesn't matter the skill level. And I think there was some hesitancy from some of the folks who was the first time ever playing. And then just seeing that it's fun. We take a lot of care in the planning to make sure teams that want to be competitive can play against each other. Teams that want to just have fun out there. Uh, we have divisions for that as well. And, uh, it was a great moment. And, Jim, we hope uh, we hope you'll hop over the boards uh, with us again this year. Well, anytime, Brendan, anytime. Brendan Ennis, the Director of Corporate and Community Partnerships at the Princess Margaret Cancer Foundation. We are counting down the day, Saturday, October 1st, at the Vaughn Metropolitan Center for the much-anticipated Princess Margaret Road Hockey to Conquer Cancer. Go all in for your loved ones. Brendan, I can't wait. Thanks for doing this. Thank you, Jim. Look forward to seeing you. And, again, to all your, your listeners, thank you for all the, the great and kind support. Uh, it is it is needed and uh, it is greatly appreciated. If you missed any part of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.